Hey, it's Todd Duncan. Welcome to High Trust Today, the podcast. I'm on a quest to help people win in business and in life. To do that, I know they must trust themselves, their relationships, their business, and they most certainly must trust their future. When you do that, you set in motion a universe of possibilities, and that journey begins right now. The thesis that I came up with for this month's lesson is pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward, and it's this. Great salespeople are worth listening to. And so the question that you'd have to ask yourself is, thinking about where you're at in your sales career, thinking about maybe last week's performance, last month's performance, maybe the last decade's performance, is are you worth listening to? Have you been worth listening to? And as I developed the lesson, I really started to think about why would people listen to you? What are some of the things that would cause a customer to want to stop in their tracks and listen to you? In the normalcy of selling, as you're working your day-to-day business, what would have to happen for people to listen to you? What would be the filter through which people would run their processing of you as a person and then make a decision? Is this person worth listening to? And I have to tell you something, we've got to really focus on the magnitude of this question because let's face it, if you're not worth listening to, you're not making sales. It's going to be that simple. And I want to build a case for you that you almost have to think you've got to be in a position where you command your audience's attention. Now, I'm not suggesting that you do all the talking. You know from previous lessons that that is not a good character trait of a salesperson. In fact, less talking is better and more listening is always good. This is not a lesson about are you a good listener. This is a lesson about command performance. This is a lesson about getting people to listen to you. The reasons I came up with, there's probably hundreds, but I think I came up with the top 10 reasons why someone will listen to you. And I want to go through these with you during our time together on this month's lesson, and I'd love for you to evaluate how you're doing in these areas. The first reason why I think someone will listen to you is because of relationships. And if you write that word and you think about, okay, relationships, what does that really mean? Well, people listen to us because of who we know. I really believe that salespeople who are worth listening to are connected. Now, one of the questions that I want to run by you is the first part of this particular reason, and it's this question. Who do you associate with? With whom do you associate? I remember vividly to this day when I was 16 years old, my dad and I sat down in our family room and we were having a conversation about my future. And one of the questions that he asked me was how I felt about the guys that I was hanging with. And at that point, I was hanging with who I thought were the cool guys in high school. And my dad was bold enough at that point in time and maybe foresightful enough to have a conversation with me and kind of reach out and give me his opinion. And his opinion was very simply, he said, Todd, the guys that you're hanging out with right now aren't going to take you anywhere. They're not going to be a wing. They're going to be a weight. In fact, if you hang out with them for a long time, they're going to be people that you could impact in your life that you'll never have a chance to impact because of who you're hanging out with. My dad saw a red flag with the guys that I was associating with. I thought it was cool to hang with these guys. And, you know, in the end, looking back on history and where they ended up as I've watched them and certainly where I've ended up are two 
completely different places. It doesn't mean that where they ended up is bad, although in one case one of them did end up in jail. But it's about making sure that wherever you want to go, you're associating with the people that can take you there. And as it ends up, and I'm grateful for this, I'm further in life and I'm at a different point in life than I think any of those three guys were. And it's not a judgment call on them. I in no way want to communicate that they ended up the losers in life. I just feel that that distinction in changing friendships between the age of 16 and 17 changed the course of my life. And you'll see how in just a moment. But who do you associate with? There's a concept called the jury test. You know, if your closest associates took the stand, what could a jury determine about you? Could they conclude that you're trustworthy? What type of person would they conclude that you are? If you were charged with an illegal activity, would your friends help or hurt your case? I like this story. Uh, Opening an account at a New York department store, Dorothy Parker and her new husband, Alan Campbell, cited writer Alexander Wolcott as a reference for their financial reliability. They were soon to regret their choice, however. Wolcott's endorsement read, and I quote, Mr. Alan Campbell, the present husband of Dorothy Parker, has given my name as a reference in his attempt to open an account at your store. We all hope you will extend this credit to him. Surely, Dorothy Parker's position in American letters is such as to make shameful the petty refusals which she and Alan have encountered at many hotels, restaurants, and department stores. What if you never get paid? Why shouldn't you stand your share of the expense? You know, kind of a play on reality there, but at the end of the day, do you really have the deep friendships that you think you have? Do you really have the kind of associations that take you to a higher level? As a salesperson, people are going to listen to you because of who you know and how you're connected. And that leads us actually to letter B, who are your mentors? Who are your mentors? If you have people investing their lives into yours, then these mentors are the people that you try to model. So one of the questions you have to ask is, what type of people are they? What makes them important to you? Would you be embarrassed or ashamed if customers knew who your mentors are? I can sit here and from a position of absolute confidence, I can say that I am proud for you to know who my mentors are. And that's because of what my dad did with me when I was 16. I had no idea how that lesson would carry out through my life, but I made a change at the age of 17. I worked in a sporting goods store at that point in time. I met a guy at that point in time that was 21 years old. His name was Bob Shank. And 32 years later, Bob Shanks still is a friend of mine and still has played a huge influential part of my life. He's impacted me in ways that I can't honestly say other people have impacted me. He is a mentor, and I'm proud to call him friend. I'm proud to call him mentor. Now, you may not have any opinion of Bob Shank because you may not know him, and that's fine. Local people that I know here, people in the Southern California community that know who Bob Shank is, when I mention that he's my mentor or when they mention, isn't Bob a mentor of yours, that's something that I'm very, very proud of. I try and model Bob. I try and model who he is even today as a business person, you know, as a dad, as a husband. I have a great relationship with a guy named Hiram Smith. He's the co-chairman of the Franklin Covey Company. Just exchanged emails with Hiram just two weeks ago, and, and I'm proud of the fact that he's a mentor of mine. And maybe you have a different sense of him as a mentor of mine because you know who the Franklin Covey Company is. Many of you as club listeners know no doubt that one of the great mentors I have is John Maxwell, and, and I'm proud that he's my mentor. There's two questions here. Who are your mentors? And are people proud that they are your mentors? Because, see, people are going to listen to you 
because of who is surrounding you, who's pouring their life into you, and who's making a difference. And I think that what we have to recognize is there's clearly two different types of people. Aldous Huxley said, more books have been written about Napoleon than about any other human being. The fact is deeply and alarmingly significant. What must be the daydreams of people for whom the world's most agile social climber and ablest bandit is the hero they most desire to hear about? Duches and fewers will cease to plague the world only when the majority of its inhabitants regard such adventurers with the same disgust as they now bestow on swindlers and pimps. So long as men worship the Caesars and Napoleons, Caesars and Napoleons will duly rise and make them miserable. The proper attitude toward this type of hero is not Carlyle's but Bacon's. He is like the ape, wrote Bacon of the ambitious tyrant. The higher he climbs, the more he shows his arse. <laughs> the hero those qualities are brilliant, but so is the mandrill's rump. Now, I put that in a context for you that hopefully you'll understand. There are winners and there are losers, okay? And you've got to ask yourself the question, who are you surrounding yourself with? Just because somebody gets the headlines, just because somebody gets the press, doesn't mean that's the type of person that you should be surrounded by. But you know what? I'm going to listen to you differently if you're surrounded by the kind of mentors and the kind of people that I would look up to, that I would admire, that I would say, you know what, hey, those are people worth following. And the third part of this first character trait, relationships, is who are your wealth builders? You know, people are going to listen to you because of your wealth builders. They're going to listen to you because of who you've already helped that they may know. It doesn't really mean that they have a relationship with them, but they may know of whom this person is. And I'm talking about three different areas in your notes. You must know your most valuable customers. You know, you must be in the business of knowing who your most valuable customers are because your most valuable customers are more likely to be known by those in the community of who you serve. And quite honestly, that list of customers, if they're the right kinds of customers, are going to be reasons why I listen to you. You must be giving them the best advice. Your wealth builders are not only your best customers, but they're only going to remain your best customers if you're giving them the best advice. And obviously, selling is a about advice. You may think it's about price, but I think it's about advice. And if we can begin to look at your most valuable customers and giving them great advice, those are the wealth building opportunities. And I'm going to listen to you as your customer more if I know who your wealth builders are, who are the best people that you're advising. And that leads us to a third element of this. You must become a huge name dropper. A good buddy of mine, Jim McMahon, before he talks to any potential prospect runs a filter on his database to see who may have worked at the company or who works at the company of the particular person that he's trying to approach or trying to engage in a selling relationship. Your wealth builders are your best customers. You're advising them well, and you need to use their names in talk, in conversation, in testimonials, in print. Those are the types of relationships that get people to listen to you. So relationships is the first one. What's the second one? I'm going to listen to you because of your sufferings. Now, you may not get real excited about this one right out of the blocks, but you know what? People listen to us because of what we've been through. I mean, I really believe that. I believe that your sufferings, the things that you have endured as you have grown through and grown up in the selling business are the very reasons why people are going to listen to you. They listen to us because of what we've been through. 
In the summer of 1941, Sergeant James Allen Ward was awarded the Victoria Cross for climbing out onto the wing of his Wellington bomber 13,000 feet above the Zyder Z to extinguish a fire in the starboard engine. Secured by only a rope around his waist, he managed not only to smother the fire, but also to return along the wing to the aircraft's cabin. Churchill, an admirer as well as a performer of swashbuckling exploits, summoned the shy New Zealander to 10 Downing Street. Ward, stuck dumb with awe in Churchill's presence, was unable to answer the Prime Minister's questions. Churchill surveyed the unhappy hero with some compassion. He said, You must feel very humble and awkward in my presence. Yes, sir, managed Ward. Then you can imagine how humble and awkward I feel in yours, said Churchill. See, I want you to realize that sufferings are very positive. The things that you go through, the things that you grow through are very positive. Look at your notes. What are some of your greatest setbacks? If you were to reflect over your selling career, what were some of the great setbacks that you had as you navigated growth and as you navigated advancement in your selling career? How have those setbacks set you up to be somebody that has had sufferings? What obstacles, B, have you overcome? When you write that word in obstacles, look at the barriers, look at all the challenges, look at all the ups and downs that you've had in your career, and how have you overcome those, and how can you use those in story fashion so that people will listen to you? I think of myself as a seminar student often. I go to seminars often. I am more interested in listening to somebody who has gone through adversity than I am listening to someone who reports they haven't had any. And I think one of the greatest joys in your life can be when you see your setbacks and your obstacles as something very powerful and very positive. When you look at letter C, how have you handled adversity? I mean, literally, how have you handled the adversity in your life? And I believe that there is this kind of, and you'll see it as we go forward, there's this relationship between suffering and some of the other elements of why people will listen to you that really you should get excited about. I find that a lot of salespeople try and kind of create this aura that they've never had a setback. And yet I think setbacks can be very empowering. Obstacles that you've overcome can be very empowering. How you've handled adversity can be very, very empowering. People will listen to you because of how you've dealt with those three things. A man is fortunate if he encounters living examples of vice as well as of virtue to inspire him. What a great quote by Brendan Francis. A man is fortunate... See, people are fortunate if they can encounter real examples of vice as well as virtue, the good and the bad. They both inspire, and people will listen to you if you get this. Number three is character. People listen to us because of our integrity, and integrity is the root of character. When we look at integrity and we define integrity, we ask ourselves, what is it? Well, it's the state of being complete or being unified. And one of the great questions is, is who you are on the outside the same as who you are on the inside? And see, what I find is a lot of salespeople compete with themselves. In fact, there's a major point in your notes that says, the person with whom you compete the most is the person you see when you look in the mirror. I did a lesson a couple months ago on integrity. We spent the entire 50 or 55 minutes just working through that, that one word, integrity, and we introduced you to the integrity matrix. 
people are going to listen to you because of your honesty. They're going to listen to you because you're complete and you're unified. You're not, in current terms, somebody who goes backwards and forwards or who flip-flops, if you understand, the going back and changing your story or communicating one thing and then delivering on another. In fact, I put four different points in your notes that I think are critical, and it's about people listening to us. And let's face it, as salespeople, the best thing we want to have happen is we want to have people listen to us, because if they're not listening to us, something has gone wrong. There's been some disconnect, and it could be many of these 10 that I'm giving you in this month's lesson, or it could be simply one of them. And one of the great ones is integrity. So as we look at these thoughts, these four different things about integrity, let's be very, very honest about where we're at with them. What is others' perceptions of your trustworthiness? How do people perceive you? What do your colleagues perceive of you in the area of trustworthiness? What do your suppliers perceive of you in the area of trustworthiness? What do your affiliates perceive of you in your area of trustworthiness? What do your customers perceive of you in your area of trustworthiness? B, do you have the capacity to follow through on everything you tell your customers you will do? I believe that this single thought right here is where one of the great severances of integrity occurs for most salespeople. Because most of us think that the way to get the sale is to commit. And most of us commit far more than we can ever deliver. In fact, it leads us to number C. Do you overpromise or do you overdeliver? And see, the idea of overpromising is that idea of overcommitting. Overdelivering is good because that says that you're doing more than you promised. It says that you're doing it faster than you promised. It says that you're doing it better than you promised. But overpromising and then underdelivering is where, again, that massive severance begins to take place. See, if you look at character, character is reputation. Your trustworthiness is based on your reputation. Your capacity to follow through and have people believe it is based on your reputation. If you are an overpromiser and an underdeliverer, you have a reputation that is already severed. And as that gets around the marketplace, you always have to find new customers. And in the most severe cases, have to find a new company or a new market to work in. And I think you can't for a moment discount this one thought character. People listen to us because of our integrity. And our job as salespeople is to be people of influence. So D asks you, are you an influencer? I mean, absolute integrity, the state of being complete and unified, allows you to be an influencer. And the salesperson's job is to influence. Influence is not manipulation. Influence is getting somebody who does not have a position of saying yes or no to your product or your service initially to be influenced positively and with confidence and without doubt or manipulation to say yes to your product or your service. And at the end of the day, there's a quote in your notes, when it comes to what others think of you, perception is reality. Character leads to reputation, and reputation creates perception. And your reputation is either good or it's bad, and it is real. Either way, it is real. So I I want you to just really kind of test yourself on this third one and, and really go through and ask the question, where can I be more complete? Where can I be more unified? Where can I change some of my practices so that when I look in the mirror, I like who I see? 
There's a closing story to this point that I really love. A businessman notorious for his ruthlessness announced to Mark Twain, quote, Before I die, I mean to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I will climb Mount Sinai and read the Ten Commandments aloud at the top. I have a better idea, said Twain. You could stay home in Boston and keep them. Isn't that a great story? The fourth reason why people will listen to you is relevance. People listen to us because we identify with their needs. And this is one of the great sales pistons, if you will, that can improve the performance of the sales engine. I believe that most salespeople fail, and I believe that most customers have a setup block to listing from the very, very get-go, because most of them have not had a good experience with a salesperson. You can think through it right now, just listening to this particular lesson this month. You have a automatic block that you put up when you start engaging with a salesperson, because you've had a bad experience. You've had salespeople talk to you about things that are not relevant. Just recently, I had a scenario where one of our customers came up to me and identified a story of a guy that I work with that I referred her to, and he happens to be in the car business. And while they were on the phone in the first five minutes of their conversation, he said to her, we have a black one. And she said to me just a couple weeks ago, she said, you know what? I hate black. So people are not going to listen to us if we don't identify their needs. And so one of the things you've got to ask yourself is, are you an effective interviewer? An effective interviewer asks a lot of questions before they ever, ever offer any answers. To be a relevant salesperson is to be a salesperson of excellence. And why? Because most salespeople don't spend enough time interviewing their customers. There's a whole, you know, series of lessons we could do on high trust interviewing. And obviously, if you have my book, High Trust Selling, you, you know more how to do that. If you have our CDs on how to do it, you, if you've watched our videos, you know how to be a more effective interviewer. I believe that most salespeople should spend about two-thirds of all initial time with a prospect asking simple questions and listening to the answers. People are not going to listen to you if you're blurting out things that aren't relevant. Okay, here's B. How deeply do you connect with people? People listen to us because they identify with us. Do you connect with people? And what I found is salespeople that have a deep regard for understanding the emotional impact of buying decisions are those people that connect better. And so if you're a good connector with people, if you understand buying styles, if you understand the social styles, if you understand mirroring and matching, if you understand pacing and leading and some of those advanced kind of techniques with which you parallel and become like your customers so that you can lead them down the path, you have the ability to connect. But if you don't understand how to do those things, then you have polarity with people. And, and when you have polarity with people, I don't need to create a, a word picture for you. You understand that. You're trying to get them to come to you, and they're feeling like they need to go away, and you wrestle that one all the way to rejection and all the way to a no. C, how do you show your empathy during your face-to-face -face time? Do you have the ability to be empathic? Do you have the ability to identify with the person that you're talking with? Do you have a, an empathic performance, which is words like, I understand how you feel. I understand that need. I would have the same need. If I were on your side of the desk, I would really identify with what you just said. That's empathy in the face-to-face -face time. The last one, D, is are you likable? Are you likable? 
I have a relationship with a gentleman by the name of Tim Sanders. Tim Sanders was the 16th employee at Broadcast.com, which, as you know, got purchased by Yahoo. For the last several years, he's been the chief solutions officer for Yahoo and now is the leadership coach for Yahoo, spending a lot of his time coaching Yahoo executives. He's got a new book that's out that is just awesome. It's called The L Factor, and the L is likability. When I talk with Tim and when he and I exchange emails, you know, it gets really exciting when you recognize that it comes down to people are going to listen to you because they like you. And if you can make that intentional, if you can have people like you intentionally, if you can look at the scale of likability and master it, then you're going to have people listen to you more effectively and more sincerely. I like this story that identifies the relevance factor. Despite his large bulk, G.K. Chesterton had a mild falsetto voice, which he sometimes used to surprising effect. Before giving his first lecture on a tour of the United States, he was introduced in embarrassingly florid terms by a pompous and long-winded chairman. Sensing the audience's restlessness, Chesterton got to his feet and murmured, After the whirlwind, the still, small voice. It was this ability to identify. This chairman is up there just, you know, with this big old introduction of Chesterton, and he gets up there and just still connects. He doesn't emulate how he was set up. He stays himself. And that's what effective people do that are in the selling business. Okay, here's number five. It's insight. People listen to us because of what we know. The question is really important for us to ask and to answer. I mean, are you an expert? Here's a great story that sets this up. At a dinner party, George Bernard Shaw sat next to a young man who proved to be a bore of historic proportions. After suffering through a seemingly interminable monologue, Shaw cut in to observe that between the two of them, they knew everything there was to know in the world. How is that, asked the young man. Well, said Shaw, you seem to know everything except that you're a bore, and I know that. (laughs) See, insight. People listen because of what we know. And this is just a funny story that it's not about you just spouting out what you know. It's not about creating a kind of a relationship that you are the know-it-all. It is about the insight of your knowledge. It's about using your knowledge in a right way. It's about, even in the story, it's not about talking, which was the monologue that Shaw had to cut into that he observed between the two of them. They knew everything there was to know in the world. See, great salespeople have great insight, and their insight is backed by knowledge. And they don't tell anybody that they have the knowledge. They just use the knowledge. And I think this is very important. So here's some elements of what maybe might inspire you to become more knowledgeable. A, how well do you know your industry? I mean, do you study the industry? Do you study the industry you're in in such a way that you are knowledgeable about it? When you look at the continuing education requirements for doctors and for CPAs and for real estate agents and for other people, they've got to study the industry that they're in to even be licensed to continue to perform in it. So how well do you know your industry? B, how well do you know business trends in your industry? C, how well do you know your product or your products? D, how well do you know your customers' needs? E, 
How diverse are you in your recommendations? I mean, are you on a single-track trend? Do you give everybody the same recommendation? Do you always sell the same product the same way to the multitude of people that you sell it to? Or do you have diversified approaches based on your knowledge? See, I think that knowledge leads to action, and I think knowledge is power, only if it's used to add value to your customer. So there's five things right there that are going to give you knowledge that will allow you to be more insightful, which is, again, another reason why people will listen to you. Number six is vulnerability. People listen to us because of our transparency. Vulnerability, very important word. Here's a story that sets it up. After several attempts, Mark Twain at last obtained an appointment to see General Ulysses S. Grant at home. He was elated at this prospect, but when he actually confronted Grant and looked at the square, unsmiling face, he found himself for the first time unable to think of what to say. Grant noted for his taciturnity, nodded slightly and waited. Mark Twain hesitated, and then inspiration came. General, he said, I seem to be a little embarrassed. Are you? (laughs) This broke the ice, and there were no further difficulties. Twelve years later, the two men met again in Chicago at a reception for General Grant after his world tour. Twain arrived in time for the large welcoming procession. On the way to the reviewing stand, the mayor of Chicago said, General, let me present Mr. Clemens, a man almost as great as yourself. The two men shook hands, and there was a pause. And then the general looked at Twain gravely. Mr. Clemens, he said... I am not embarrassed, are you? And they both laughed. Twelve years later. See, the absolute transparency, the authenticity, everything that took place 12 years earlier set up a relationship that was not ever forgotten. Here are some things you need to ask yourself. Are you a poser? In my book, Killing the Sale, I talk about posing, which is trying to sell before training to sell. But I set that up as this idea of putting yourself in a bubble and trying to pretend that you're really something that you're not. Posing is the fastest way to have people not listen to you. It's one of the gravest mistakes that will kill the sale. Here's the second one. Are you approachable? I mean, do you have that kind of outward approachability? Do you set yourself up where you're smiling a lot? Do you set yourself up where people can see that you're somebody they'd like to get to know? Do you set yourself up in a way that you welcome people into a relationship with you? See, most people that think that they can't be transparent create this just facade, and the facade pushes people away. They're going to listen to you because you're a real person. You are a real person. You're into relationships, okay? You've got empathy. Your attitude is positive, and you love working with people. There's a great real acrostic, R-E-A-L. So are you approachable? And see, what do you risk? I mean, do you put yourself on the line? Or do you just kind of carry yourself as somebody that's got it all figured out? And I think vulnerability is one of the big, big ones that we can all work on. I try daily to become more transparent, to become more authentic. Number seven is experience. People listen to us because of our past successes and failures. Now, this differs a little bit from your sufferings in that this can be an entire kind of body of who you've become. It's not just one suffering. It is the embodiment of all of your successes and failures. People listen to us because of our experience. Again, I have a funny story to set this up. William Shatner's most embarrassing moment occurred when he was still a novice in his profession. He was asked to attend 
to party at Joshua Logan's house and did, bringing his baby daughter and his 80-pound dog along for the evening. He immediately saw that he had dressed wrong. He was in a T-shirt and jeans, while every other guest was in a tuxedo or a long formal gown. And almost as quickly, his dog jumped into the pool, got out, ran over to a beautifully dressed Gloria Vanderbilt, and jumped up on her with his muddy paws, soiling and soaking her dress. Shatner left as quickly as possible, obviously. Years later, he ran into Henry Fonda on an airplane. Mr. Fonda said, Shatner, I don't suppose you remember me. Fonda interrupted him, saying, Aren't you the young actor who was at Logan's party and whose dog dirtied Gloria Vanderbilt's dress? See, listen, (laughs) years later, years later, the experiences can still be remembered. And that's what I want you to think about. The experience before it becomes an experience would be nice to avoid, although there are experiences that we'll never be able to avoid. And yet I want you to embrace the idea that people will listen to you because of those experiences, whether they're successes or whether they're failures. I think if we look at this, though, most people tend to run from their failures. They tend to brag only about their successes. Well, let me just tell you, your experience is a package deal. It is your successes as well as it is your failures. And so we need to look at maybe at five things that kind of go into creating what I call your experience package. Here's the first one. What are you least proud of, least proud of, that you can help others avoid? Think about for a moment the thing that you are least proud of, that if you could reach out and help your colleagues avoid, or that if you could reach out and have your customers avoid, or that you could reach out and have friends and people that are in your social circles avoid, what would that thing be? See, most of us kind of bury that least proud of that can help others avoid. I remember the first time that I announced to an audience what I was least proud of, and you can read it in my books. I am uh, not hiding it at all anymore. But I remember when my definition of success wasn't what it is today. And I remember the first time that I announced to an audience that I had been addicted to cocaine. But it was amazing to see the amount of people that came up afterwards to either talk to me about how they had been freed from some of their addictions or to seek my guidance, which would be helping others. And I'll tell you something, as soon as I let that out, as soon as I made the conscious choice that I wasn't going to hold this in anymore, it was an amazing tipping point and turning point in my life as a coach, as a speaker, as a teacher. And maybe there's a list of three or four things that you can use to help others avoid. See, people are going to listen to you when you become transparent and share those negative experiences. Most of us try and and just kind of keep those in. Here's the second one. What have you achieved that's valuable to others? What is the list of achievements that you have really worked for and worked through and gotten that would be valuable to others? C, what are you most proud of? What are you most proud of that you'd like to share? What are some of the things that have gone into your experience package that you are most proud of that you definitely want to let out? And not in condescending, not in some kind of bragging rights moment in time or state, you know, just kind of blast out. It's in a soft, kind of approachable way. What are you proud of? I'm proud of a lot of things. I'm proud that I have a time schedule that allows me to be with my wife and my kids regularly by design. I'm proud that I recognize that my successes 
resources from God above and not anything that I've created on my own. I'm proud of the fact that I'm creating legacy. I'm proud of the fact that I'm giving a lot of money away. I'm proud of the fact that I'm balanced. I'm proud of the fact that I'm living the lifestyle that my life plan has suggested that I wanted to live. I'm proud of a lot of things. My what am I proud of list is much longer than what I'm least proud of. And in terms of comparing those lists, my goal in life is to make the least proud list dwarf in comparison. And that can be your goal, too. Here's D. What is your greatest customer service story? What are the great experiences you've had with your customers? And how can those stories be used for others to become more committed to listening to you because of the successes? What are your greatest customer service failures? And not that we're going to use those to showcase to our customers, but again, those would probably make it to your least proud of list. And I will tell you this right now, that your great customer service failures set you up for your great customer service successes. And I said it in high trust selling. I think I even mentioned it in killing the sale. Most salespeople, when they've got a customer problem, run from the problem. The great salespeople run to the problem and they fix it because they realize a recovered customer can become a loyal and profitable customer. And now the last one, how many testimonials do you have? You want to talk about an experience package? You can go to the Toyota dealership in San Diego. You can go to the Lexus dealership in San Diego. You can go to the Mercedes dealership in Newport Beach, all three different places that I've been to get cars in the last five years. And I'll tell you something. They all have what they call their wall of fame. Many of our clients have their own individual wall of fame. Many of our clients have their notebook of testimonials. I have a new book coming out just in a couple months called Time Traps. And I remember sitting down as I wrote that book and going through three three, three and a half inch binders of testimonial letters that I had from people that had figured out how to balance their life and to have time for not only their personal life, but time for their business. And I have thousands of testimonials. Well, those all go into my experience package and people listen to me because I have people who have listened to me who have had huge breakthroughs and successes because of that. So all five of these are important and I encourage you to look at these with a maybe an asterisk. Your experience package is a big part of why people will listen to you. Number eight is humility. I mean, people listen to us when we embody meekness. It's real simple. I mean, when you have a humble spirit, people will listen to you. When L.L. L. White was a young theoretical physicist studying in Berlin in the late 1920s, an acquaintance arranged for him to meet Einstein. White, diffident about intruding upon the great man, was delighted to receive a friendly letter from Einstein, inviting him to call. The letter concluded, don't be put off by Frau Einstein. She's there to protect me. White recounts what happened during his visits to Einstein's home. After we'd been talking for about 20 minutes, the maid came in with a huge bowl of soup. I wondered what was happening, and I thought that this was probably a signal for me to leave. But when the girl left the room, Einstein said to me in a conspiratorial whisper, that's a trick. If I am bored talking to somebody when the maid comes in, I don't push the bowl of soup away, and the girl takes whomever I am with away, and I am now free. Einstein pushed the bowl away, and so I was quite happy and much flattered and more at my ease for the rest of the talk. So there's three ways to apply this. Would your friends say that you're a humble person? Would your customers say that you're a humble person? Do you have an approachability about you? There's a second way to look at this. Do you have a habit of putting others' needs before your own? 
Are you approachable that way? Do people come to you with their problems? See, do you have kind of an openness about you so that you can have this humbleness so people can come to you with their problems? I think Jesus said it right. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. This idea of a humble spirit is not that you are a wimp. Okay, it is about your approachability. It's about putting others before yourself. It's about understanding that people have problems that maybe you can solve. It's about understanding that at the end of the day, people are going to listen to you because you're worth listening to because you have a humble spirit. And I think that you have to ask yourself, how can I be different than most salespeople? My experience has always been that most salespeople aren't humble. Most salespeople are a little cocky. Most salespeople are a little condescending. Most salespeople are kind of braggadocious. They're putting their own needs before yours. And I believe that you need to do it the other way. I believe you need to reverse it. Number nine is competence. People listen to us because of our abilities and our expertise. One of the uh, laws that I teach in high trust selling is the law of the dress rehearsal. The law of the dress rehearsal basically says that you've got to know what you're going to say in a selling situation. It says that if you don't practice when you play, you'll look like you haven't practiced. And what I want you to understand about competence is that you've got to be prepared. I mean, that's really what it's all about. If you think about a compelling message, if you think about why people will listen to you, they're going to listen to you because you know what you're talking about. This gets back to knowledge a little bit, but knowledge extended over periods of time leads to competence. Four things in your notes that I want you just to consider. Are you at a loss for words in a selling situation? If you're at a loss for words in a selling situation, you're obviously not prepared. Bottom line is, if you're not prepared in a selling situation, you have an increased opportunity to lose the sale. People aren't going to listen to you when you're hemming and hawing and trying to figure out what to say. There's this opportunity to be prepared. So if you're at a loss for words, your abilities and your expertise are not as developed as they should be. B is how well do you speak your selling language? How well do you use words? How well do you use product descriptions? How well do you use specific words that the customer is using or that the customer is giving you? What is your selling language? Is it fast or slow? Does it have a lot of modulation? Does it have a lot of volume to it? Is it soft? I mean, you have to think through actually how you sell. C is, do you come across confident in what you're saying? You know, the whole idea of this is what's going to be said and this is how it's going to be said. And then D is, do you have a plan to capture your customer's feedback on you and your selling process? Your abilities and your expertise are affected by what you say in a selling situation. Your confidence, your language, the words you use, and the feedback you get all go in to creating a competence package. And the more competent you are, the more people will listen to you. And finally, we talk about number 10, which is courage. People listen to us because we demonstrate conviction. There's a great story that sets this up, and I really want you to think about this last one, courage. Do you demonstrate conviction? During the occupation, but before his imprisonment, Christian X, the king of Denmark, noticed a Nazi flag flying over a Danish public building. He immediately called the German commandant, demanding that the flag be taken down at once. The commandant refused to comply with the king's request. Then the soldier will go out and take it down, said the king. He will be shot, returned the commandant. I think not, replied the king, for I shall be the soldier. The flag was taken down. So the first question that I want to ask you as we wrap up this month's lesson is, do you believe in you? 
one of the great quotes by Dr. Norman Vincent Peale is as follows. Believe in yourself. Have faith in your ability. Without a humble but reasonable confidence in your own powers, you cannot be successful or happy. But with sound self-confidence, you can succeed. Do you believe in you? Do you believe in what you sell? Would you buy what you sell if you had a need for it? Or would you go to a competitor? Do you believe in your company, how they support you, how they surround you, how they take care of you? Do you believe in what your company stands for? Do you believe in their values and their culture and and who they've become in the marketplace? Do you believe in your management team? Do you believe in your senior management team? Do you believe in the guy or gal that's at the very top? Do you have high trust in that person? Number uh, D is, do you believe in your affiliates? If you have vendors that you rely on, if you have third-party companies that help you deliver your primary product, do you believe in them? Do you believe in the people that are surrounding you that are part of the selling transaction? Do you believe in your customers? Do you trust your customers? Do you like your customers? Are you excited about working with your customers? You want to talk about conviction. You wouldn't believe how many salespeople I look at that don't have conviction in some of the customers they serve. And all of these are important. 